6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 15 through 31. Uh, when you get down to verse 13, we, he gives us a vivid description of the isolation he feels, not just the pain of the disease and, and all that he's going through. You got a, you, you pus covered sores and all that stuff. It's uh, his isolation. He hath put my brethren far from me and mine acquaintance are you verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I called my servant. And he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth and my, my breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated her. I treated for the children's sake of my own body. Yea, young children despise me. I rose, they spake against me. All my inward friends. And he goes on. I just, it's, it's bad stuff, tough stuff. But it builds up here. He says, I've, uh, in verse 21, I've, I've escaped with the skin of my teeth. This is where the expression comes from. Verse 21, have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends. The hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Notice verse 23 and 4. 24. I think this is kind of fun. He says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Now, that's just a cry of a tortured man. I don't think he had any realization that his words would be. <laughs> we are reading them. They are penned in a book. They're most, one of the most famous books in history of man, the earliest book of the Bible. And his, his, his plea here was very literally fulfilled. But the real reason I wanted to caution you here, because there's a, three verses that follow that are three of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Don't let them slip by with, without recognizing how unique they are. We're in the oldest book of the Bible. We're in the Old Testament. And listen to what Job says. For I know that my... I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He, he, he declares this statement of the bodily resurrection that he has a Redeemer that lives. This sounds like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? This sounds like Paul. No, this is Job. Oldest book of the Bible. I know that my Redeemer liveth, that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. This is a, this is a concept of Jesus Christ that eludes most churches. It's amazing how many churches do not dwell or focus or, or acknowledge that Christ is literally physically going to return to rule on the earth. He'll rule in our hearts. They, they allegorize it all away. My Redeemer liveth, and they shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh. See, he's talking about a resurrection of the body. 
He's talking about the resurrection of the body, not some kind of spirit thing. He's talking about, in my flesh shall I see God. I remember as a kid, when the Revised Standard Version just came out, one of the contributors, they, they translated it, without my flesh I shall see God. They, they destroyed the whole thing by uh, twisting the Hebrew. And none of the, none of the, none of the other modern translations, I don't, I don't think, do that. They recognize the reality of what's here. It's a great treasure. Now, after my skin worms destroyed the body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, who I shall see for myself and not another. And mine eyes shall behold not another, though my reins be consumed with me. And out of all this, he's saying, my heart fades within. He said, this is, this is expression as, as earnest and as, as strong as can be said. It's one of the earliest de- de- declarations of the resurrection of the body, found in the Word of God. See, Job, Job never fails in all his misstatements and, and agony. He never fails to see the majesty and power of God. And now he comes to the dawning realization that God is working out a great and mighty purpose and that God himself will ultimately be visible before men. That's what he's saying. And the fact that God is visible, the fact that there's a Redeemer, that there's a God-man involved is all implicit here. And that all that God has done will ultimately be vindicated even though he doesn't see it right now. See, life is a mystery. And our problem is we can't comprehend it all because it's painted on too large a canvas. Can you imagine a small fly? Uh, If you've been to the the, uh, forest lawn, they have a painting of the crucifixion. I forget how long it is. It must be 60 or 80 feet long. It's a huge, huge painting. But can you imagine a fly crawling on that inch by inch trying to make sense of it? You follow me? It'll see colors and brush strokes and, you know, it's, it's the threads of the tapestry or whatever. It has no concept. If we, that's our problem in life. Life is painted on too large a canvas for us. But Job, despite his concern of the mysteries, is beginning to trust God. And the trust, the whole thing, the, the, the main lesson in the book of Job is that God is, the, that God is there. And Job begins to believe that he will, God will supply the answers he seeks. Verse 28 continues about, Ye should say, Why persecute ye him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, the wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know that there is a judgment. By the way, uh, I, I did encounter a poem. Ray Stedman's commentary had a poem that uh, is unknown author, but it's, uh, it's, it really summarizes Job to this point. Let me just indulge a quick poem here. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man, and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How, how he ruthlessly perfects, how he royally elects, how he hammers him and he hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, he and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks. When his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses. <clears throat> With every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Authors unknown, but I think that's the message of Job to us. Well, let's give Zophar, the zealous, his answer. Job 20, he, he jumps in for his second shot at Job. See, and as we read the discourses of Job's comforters, we've got to be careful. We may recognize many of our own attitudes here. 
And we're going to see the Pharisee here. The Pharisee, Pharisaism, if you will, can be generalized as orthodoxy without godliness. Outward rightness without in, with inward wrongness, if you will. So Zophar jumps into all this and he hammers away. I'll leave that for your reading assignment. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't make any profound points as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to move on. Let's just, let's just hear what Job says to him in reply, verse chapter 21. And here, this is, he, he, if you're going to take arguments to Job, you better have your arguments in order because Job cuts through it all. He's calm. Here now, in this case, uh, chapter 21 must have been part of a time when his pain wasn't quite as great because he seems very cold, very, you know, um, dispassionate. And uh, he begins with an appeal for a hearing. Job answered and said, Hear diligently my speech and let this be your consolations. Suffer me that I may speak. And after that I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint to man? If it were so, why should I not? should not my spirit be troubled? Mark me and be astonished and lay your hand upon your mouth. Even when I remember I am afraid and the trembling taketh hold on my, my flesh. From chapter 7 through 13, he's going to point out that the facts contradict what his friends are saying. In fact, his, his, the, the entire life of the wicked is often an untroubled one. See, they keep saying, you know, if you're, if you're, you're hurt because, because you're wicked, because, I mean, and, and so forth. He points out, no, people who are wicked get along fine, many of them. That's not the point. Where do, wherefore do the wicked live and become old, yea, and mighty in power? Their seed is established in their own in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear; neither is the rod of God upon them. This is very similar, you know, to uh, Habakkuk, his anxiety in the book of Habakkuk. Why, you know, why is God um, so hard on Israel and Babylon's doing so well? Because well, Babylon's going to be God's instrument against Israel. It's the same similar kind of issue. And he goes on about this, how the wicked defy God and they still prosper. Verse 13, they spend their days in wealth, and in a moment they go down to the grave. And he goes on like this, you get down, um, verse 18, they are stubble before the wind and as chaff the storm carrieth away. See, how seldom do the wicked really get their comeuppance? See, God's judgment seems to us very infrequent. Now and then you see it, but not as a general rule. The wicked prosper. Why do the wicked prosper? That's one of the one of the big enigmas uh, in 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 this in this thing. And basically, what he's going to argue through this is that life seems to be very unfair. If there is a good God, why does He let this kind of thing happen? And he elo- very eloquently goes uh, goes through all this. Um, he fi- he concludes, and how how then comfort ye me in vain? Seeing in your answers there remaineth falsehood. He's saying that your theology sounds good, but it doesn't fit the facts. We've got to be on a guard on that. You know, the, the, most of uh, at least uh, you can take a piece of truth and overgeneralize it and end up with error, especially when it's misapplied. The wicked typically live above the law. The world system is very typically prostituted to the convenience of the elite. Even in this country, where we have probably landmark gains over human rights and other things in our culture, even here, you watch uh, the elite um, abuse the average people. As, uh, you, know, you, can, you, you, can, you can commit murder and get away with it if you have enough money, enough power, enough pulse. Uh, you can be president of the United States and get away with the kinds of things that... that uh, Anyway, um, 
Anyway, moving on. The third round. We've gone through two, uh, the second round. Now we've got one last round, the third round of this, starting at Job chapter 22. Eliphaz, again, leads on. He's the eloquent guy. But he finally loses his cool completely. Even Eliphaz, remember how polished and courteous he was in the first round? Well, he really answered, uh, uh, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is, is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it a gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? By the way, Job never said he's perfect. They're, they're harping on this over and over again. Don't, don't fall into the trap. He never said he was. He never thought any of these things are accusing him. Uh, he doesn't understand what God is doing, but he still sees God as a God of justice and righteousness. Eliphaz goes on, What Will he repute thee for fear of thee? Uh, uh, will he enter in with thee into judgment? You know, Satan is always trying to get us to blame God for being unfair and uh, unjust. That, that, uh, that's what he's, that seems to be part of his agenda. Well, Alphaz continues, is not thy wickedness great and thy iniquity infinite? By the way, he's never accused him of anything specific. It's all these generalities trying to apply. He's trying to apply his preconceived solution to this problem. And be careful. We all do that. And we all do that. And there's several places here, like verse 18, where he's actually, Eliphaz is mimicking what Job said back in the previous chapter. Verse 18 of this chapter is the same as verse 16 of the previous chapter. There's an echoing, in effect, going on. Anyway, chapter 23, Job replies to all of this. And by the way, in the next two chapters, Job doesn't even try to answer the arguments anymore. He's had enough of all this stuff. He simply cries out from a troubled heart. And he's, he very eloquently tells them, and perhaps more directly, God, how he feels. And Job answered said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he bleed against me with this great power? No. But we, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. On the, and he hideth himself on the right hand, I cannot see him. And he knoweth the way that I might take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You know, this is a remarkable re- conviction of God's justice. He has no idea where he is. He doesn't understand why he can't reach him, and yet... When I shall come forth, I shall come forth as gold. He has a great deal of confidence that God is a God of justice. And he knows that God will explain it to him someday. So his, frustrated, his biggest frustration is he doesn't know why all this is going on, on the one hand. On the other hand, he has this conviction that there is a purpose in it, and God will ultimately be the one to explain it to him, not these three turkeys that have been spending all this time here for the last chapter. And uh, my foot, my my foot hath held his steps; his way have I kept, and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Boy, that's all right. So he he continues in this vein, right through chapter twenty-four. He continues the same theme. Why is God silent? He's saying, why is 
Why doesn't he judge evil? He doesn't understand. He does, he, he's troubled by these mysteries. He says, why, seeing that times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they not know him? Do they that know him not see his days? Some remove the landmarks. They violently take away flocks and feed thereof. You know what I mean by moving landmarks? That's what happened with Enrod. That's in the agricultural economy, the same thing as embezzlement. Or what have you. You follow what I'm saying? And uh, they turn out the way of the need. The poor of the earth hide themselves together. Oh, they drive away the ass from the fathers. They take away the widow's ox for a pledge. And in other words, these guys are abusive. These powerful guys are abusive. And he goes through all these different things that they do, and yet they don't, they don't come to justice. They seem to, they seem to get away with it. He goes on like this right through the you know, first 20 some odd verses. But there are two great questions that are nagging at Job all the way through here. Why is God absent where he's needed? And why is he so silent when he should speak? Those are the mysteries. Now, by the way, this is Job, the earliest book in the Bible, and he's not perfect. Peter and Paul both see evidences of these dilemmas. Both these dilemmas are evidences of God's patience and long-suffering. Why is is he silent when he is needed? Why is he absent when he's needed? Because he's patient. He doesn't strike yet because he has a purpose in it. And why is he silent when he should speak? Because there's a purpose in it. And that's what uh, uh, that Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Oh, despisest thou the riches of goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? So you don't despise the fact that, that God is patient. You don't hear him because he's patiently letting it play out. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. That's what's happening to Job. Job's thinking this through, and you're going to see Job grow spiritually through these things chapter by chapter. Peter says the same thing, sort of, in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance, giving them a chance to repent of their own volition. Anyway, Job finishes it up, and he says, though it be given him to be, in verse 23, Chapter 24. Though it be given him to be in safety whereon he resteth, yet his eyes upon their ways. They are exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. They are taken out of the way as all other, and cut off as the tops of the ears of corn. And if it be not so now, who will make me a liar and make my speech nothing worth? Well, Bildad now, he's going to take his third shot at this. And he, he continues with the same worn-out arguments. The good news about chapter 25, it's a short one, eight, six verses. So, and Job, in effect, replies. Now, there is, there is a distinction here. Most commentators have chapter 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and 31, Job's final soliloquy. That'll be the end of Job's comments. From there on, it's the Lord's. But you'll notice there's, if, you, if you're watching this, we had, we had Eliphaz, Bildad, Zohar, and then uh, so far, and then uh, same three. We don't have a third uh, uh, discourse of so far. We'll have Eliphaz will speak, Job will reply, uh, uh, Bildad will speak. Uh, they believe, some scholars, primarily Bullinger, believes a segment of the sequence is actually Zophar's presentation a little later, spoken sarcastically. You know, the, the tone is different, obviously. And I'm not going to get into that too much except just to highlight it to you for your notes because there's some scholastic debate about that. Most expositors feel that the rest of the, is, the rest of this is Job's reply and that Zophar never gets a third shot. 
Bullinger feels about verse 11 of chapter 27 is where he starts for about a chapter. We'll, get, we'll do that when we get there. That would provide symmetry. He may be right, but we'll see. But anyway, in, 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 uh, <laughs> in chapter 26, it seems that Job is hanging up the phone. He's, his answer to Bildad is rich in irony. Job answered and said, How hast thou helped him that is without power? How hast savest thou the arm that hath no strength? Hast thou counseled him that hath no wisdom? How hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? To whom hast thou uttered words? And whose spirit came from thee? <laughs> Actually, Satan sent them, but God is still using them because he's using us for, for, for Job's growth. And he goes on and, 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 and hammers away rather eloquently at, at our friend uh, and basically, he lists mysteries. God's going to talk, talk about his mysteries in a few chapters away. But he talks about uh, dead things are formed from under the waters and the inhabitants thereof. Hell is naked before him. The destruction hath no covering. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. Wow. You know, any of us with a, a, a modern science background, that's very vivid. Can you imagine this being in the oldest book in the Bible? He hangeth the earth upon nothing. Wow. And Isaiah will talk about the severe of the earth. Interesting. He, tre- he stretches out the north over the empty place. He hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters as in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. He compassed the waters with the bounds till the day and the night come to an end. Pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his reproof. He divideth the sea with his power and by his Understanding, he smiteth through the proud. By his spirit, he garnished the heavens, and his hand hath formed the crooked serpent. Lo, these are parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? In other words, Job's the gist of what he's saying, there are mysteries of God that no man cannot, can plumb them. But then he continues, As God liveth, who t- hath taken away my judgment, and my Almighty has vexed my soul, and while, all, while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast, and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. You know, it's interesting, you stand back, if you see, this probably was a play. The whole thing's in poetry, except the opening and closing chapters. But can you visualize the eloquence on both sides as a play? You've got these three guys. Um, Eliphaz, the eloquent, then Bildad, and Zophar, uh, each one decreasing eloquence. But anyway, attacking all of them relatively eloquently, this one guy who's on this trash heap, hurting, bleeding, uh, near death. And he fends them all off. Fends them all off. We get down to about verse 11. Some scholars think verse 11 of chapter 27 is Zophar's third discourse. And I won't try to build that one way or the other. And they typically assume that that uh, can be viewed that way uh, right on through. Well, let's just continue. Job, in any case, chapter Job 29 is Job again, his final reply. And we have extended a soliloquy as to his fight, which is his final defense. He reviews everything that's happened to him, and he count, first the first thing he does is count his blessings. Can you imagine that? He undoubtedly does pretty well, but he still makes some rash and reckless statements that he later regrets and acknowledges uh, later. But uh, his suffering at this point is too deep to 
to aim at any, you know, arguing with these guys. He just simply seeks the truth. So Job continues, and oh, that I were in, uh, were as in months past and in the days when God preserved me, when his candle shined upon my head and when his light, uh, and when by his light I walked through darkness. And he goes through and really it's, it's a, it's a recounting of his blessings. Boy, it goes on all the way through chapter 31. Um, we get chapter 31, he's, he's starting to search for a reason. And he's, but he, he has learned as you watch his dialogue, that uh, to keep clean before uh, God, that in order to be, keep, be clean before his God, he has to be careful of what he allows his eyes to see. He makes a covenant with his eyes. Interesting. Verse, Job 31, verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above? What inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? I have walked with vanity. If my foot hath hasted to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity. If my step be turned out of the way and my heart be uh, walked after mine eyes, and if my blot hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out, and so forth. But he goes on here, and uh, we'll find that there's no adultery in his life, there's no injustice to his servants. In verse 13, if I did despise the cause of a manservant, maidservant, when they were contended with me, when then shall I do, what shall I do when God riseth up? When you get down to verse, after verse 15, no injustice to the poor and defenseless. And he goes on for a dozen, half a dozen verses. Get down to verse 23, there's no trust in wealth. This doesn't mean he's perfect, but he, he, he recounts his record that, uh, Verse 25, I, I, if I rejoiced because of my wealth, it was great, and because mine hand hath gotten much. And he goes on, if I held, and then, uh, then he also talks about any secret idolatry. If I beheld the sun when it shined, or the moon walking in brightness, and my heart hath secretly enticed, or my mouth hath kissed my hand, this also were an iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I would have denied that God is above. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music